Welcome to A Millennial's Guide to Saving the World with your host, Anya Cates. This podcast has one mission, to rally a generation that's been labeled and groomed as lazy, triggered, and entitled, and invite us all to write a new story. One of a generation that's willing to challenge the status quo, reject black and white thinking, and opt out of each and every repressive system and box that we've been placed in. Above all else, I want to invite millennials to step up to the plate, to be vulnerable in owning our responsibility to ourselves and for walking this planet through the darkest of days. It's time to dream new dreams, write new stories, and create new futures. The great work begins. Hello, everybody. Welcome back to another episode. Coming to you live about an hour out of Stanley, Idaho. It is fucking gorgeous here. We uh, we weren't actually going to go to Idaho at all. And then a friend of mine, um, Kestrel, shout out to Kestrel, uh, who did a lot of rock climbing and mountain climbing in the past, just sort of briefly mentioned that the west side of the Tetons was a really cool, the Idaho side of the Tetons was a really cool place to go. And we'd been talking about maybe going to Idaho, but it was kind of out of the way. We wanted to drive through Yellowstone, down through Wyoming. There's this really epic drive that I've done so many times um, from the northwest corner of Wyoming uh, down to the southeast corner. So basically from Yellowstone down to Laramie. If anyone ever has the opportunity to do that drive, I highly recommend it. It's the one that takes you through Wind River Reservation, I believe. But it's one of the most epic drives in the world. It's like driving in a, your own little mini video game. Um, so you definitely wanted to do that drive. I've always just kind of entered Yellowstone on the west side and driven down. Um, but we've got all this extra time and really wanted to check out some of the hot springs in Idaho. I haven't spent much time in Idaho at all. Um, so when Kestrel said that the west side of the Tetons was really awesome and normally not very crowded, we thought, fuck it, let's just enter Yellowstone down from the bottom. So kind of head north into um, Yellowstone down from the Tetons and spend some time on the west side. So that's what we're doing. So we are in in and around Stanley, going to head into town to upload this episode in a little bit. Um Met some really, really awesome people, um, one of whom is the today's episode uh, since the last time I uploaded. Um, man, so much to talk about. I guess the f- the main thing I wanted to talk about today actually was um, children, <laughs> believe it or not. Um, for whatever reason, the past like few friends that we've hung out with on the trip all had kids. And so we've been spending a lot of time around kids. And I love kids, I always have, but I don't really spend a ton of time around them. And every time I do, I feel super fucking happy and honestly at ease. Uh, I I feel I've often sort of felt like I am a kid still. And so when I'm in uh, the presence of children, I just feel extremely comfortable. I seem to have a very high tolerance for childlike behavior. Um, I just sort of see it and recognize it in a way that feels very comfortable. Anyway, um, the last 
couple people we hung out with uh, had three boys, and we'd never met them before, had never met these kids before. And the first night we were there, I mean, we had only been there maybe a few hours, and I think they were five, seven, and nine. And the middle kid, the seven-year-old, um, we were playing games, and he just kind of looked at me very genuinely and say, oh my gosh, I forgot you aren't part of our family. And I like, I took out my phone and wrote it down because I just thought it was such a sweet comment. And it made me reflect on family and community and kids in such a profound way, just based on him saying this one thing. And we kind of joked and I said, I am a part of your family. You've adopted me. Like, what would my name be if you, if you adopted me? And, you know, he was like, you can keep your name and you can come and go, but yeah, like you're a part of the family. And I had just recently sort of had this epiphany. Um, so taking a couple steps back, I've always sort of thought about how when it comes to interacting with people, when it comes to, let's say, I don't know, sharing my gifts or affecting people, I've always felt more comfortable in a group setting. So I don't, I don't dislike working with people one-on-one, -on -one, but I really like, you know, I always kind of credit this to my um, being introverted. I read some quote once that was like, you know, you're introverted when you feel more comfortable giving a speech to a hundred people than you do going to have small talk with those hundred people afterward. And I think introvertism and extrovertism are relatively, um, not ridiculous, but oversimplified categories for sure. Um, but I always related to that. And, um, it was part of the reason I wanted to start this podcast. Like, I don't want to talk to just one person. I want to talk to a bunch of people. I just feel comfortable in a group. If I'm ever going to teach people things, I want it to be a group of people. I feel like some people are fucking amazing at that one-on-one -on -one work. And for me, I don't think that's where I thrive. I think I thrive in groups. And so I've always thought about, okay, how do I structure my life in the way that that's how I'm interacting? And I had this epiphany recently hanging out with all these kids because I've always kind of struggled between a desire to have kids and want to mother but not want to have my own kids and mother my own children. Um, but I didn't really know how to reconcile those things. So how can I be a mother but not have kids? And then I realized that obviously, as I think I've talked quite a bit about on the podcast, you know, the way that we structure our lives is completely unrealistic. I mean, the fact that culturally we are expected to, with either just ourselves or one other person, have kids, make enough of a living to support ourselves and those kids, make time to cook dinner for them, have some time for self-care, fun, vacations, plant a garden. I mean, the list goes on and on, and I think anyone who lives in this world has recognized in more than one way that these things are unrealistic. So we make sacrifices. We don't take care of ourselves, or we don't have kids, or we don't plant our own garden, or you know, we don't eat very well. We have to. That's the only way to survive. And I think when we try to do everything, we get extremely burnt out and sick and stressed and it just never works. And then we hate ourselves and the cycle continues. And so I've always wanted to create a life for myself and for my friends and, you know, anybody that wants to join me who shares my sort of like vision and beliefs in an uncult like way. You know, if we are living in communities where, hey, like there's some kids here, let's all raise them. Oh, there's a garden. Cool. You do that. I want to do this other thing. Um, you take care of that. You're the builder. You're the fixer person. You're the person that deals with sewage, right? Like 
split up these tasks and work as a team so that we can get more done and also have a lot more value in our lives. You know, there are a million things that I would want in my life that I can't have by myself. So I would love to have a garden. I've tried. I'm not very good at it, first of all. It takes a lot of time and energy, of which I don't have, and I travel too much. I would love to have kids around, but I'm certainly, I don't have the desire, the money, or the time to raise my own children. I'd love to have pets, but same deal. I can't do it on my own. But I know that if I lived in a structurally different environment, that I could and the people with me could have so much more value in their lives. So I had this epiphany around applying the same idea that I've always had around affecting groups of people to children that how valuable it would feel for me and hopefully valuable, valuable for parents and children as well, that I could help raise multiple kids. And it was like all of a sudden, all of these things made sense to me. Spending time with all these different children, having them express these desires in terms of, hey, I thought you were a part of our family. It's like, we let's all be a family. You know, it's only in the ridiculous labeling um and boxing in of the nuclear family that we created based on agriculture. Like, that's not real. We can have whatever type of chosen family and community we want. And I'm, I'm grateful that I think I see this tendency, too, of, you know, when people decide they don't want kids, that that automatically means there aren't kids in their life. And obviously there are exceptions to this. But... I think it's so valuable to spend time around kids. And obviously some kids are more easy to deal with than others, for sure. Thankfully, the kids that we've been spending a lot of time with are just fucking cool and living out in nature and have amazing parents and are curious and, you know, for the most part, well-behaved, um, aside from regular child stuff. Um, and it's been so valuable to spend time with kids because... I don't know, maybe this is just me, but when I've spent a chunk of time with kids, I think my dad actually talked a bit about this on the podcast that I did with him, that he would always sort of take my questions and my outlook on the world and take it seriously. You know, so if I asked a question, instead of being like, oh, that's a ridiculous question, he'd ask a follow-up question like, oh, like, what makes you think like that? Or, or how about this? You know, that we are not um, that children have, you know, valuable insight and something to teach adults as well. And I feel like spending time around kids, it's bizarre because I feel like when I leave that environment or, or am in it even, I start to realize like my how my mannerism is somehow childlike or how my questioning is somehow childlike or my facial expression or my desire to fool around or dance around in a grocery store. Um, I think that's also something I picked up from my dad. He would always like dance around in stores and I would be completely mortified, but he was very sort of childlike and hung on to that and saw it as something valuable. So I, I feel super grateful to be able to exist in this nuanced space of, yeah, I don't want kids, but I still really like kids. I value spending time with kids and I'd love, love to help raise them. So uh, yeah, I guess that's all I have to say about that. This is, I don't know, my like ode to children or something. <laughs> um, this podcast episode today is with, um, Kevin, who I met in a parking lot. Um, 
the joys of the road. Um, I had, it was so interesting because I had just been talking to a couple of friends like the day prior about how interested I've always been uh, with the intersection of specifically Mormonism and sexuality, but I guess more generally religion and sexuality. And I think maybe I've told this story on the podcast before, maybe not, maybe I tell it in my interview with Kevin. Um, so apologies if I repeat myself, but I'd always, uh, wanted to work with Mormon kids that were sort of cast out of their family for, um, because of being gay. And I think what I'm so into around this, but in general, is the deconstruction and reconstruction of self. So I think we all experience this on in different levels and in different degrees. And what I mean by that is we're raised in a way, this is either we're raised as a certain religion. We're raised in a certain culture or society. We'll, we're raised with specific parents, with certain beliefs or, you know, ways of having relationship. And we learn that because we're kids and we're malleable and we think we're supposed to learn from our parents and from society. And this is the world we're going up in. And so we have to adapt accordingly. But often as we grow up, we realize some of those things are misguided, whether it is religion or culture or society or our parents' beliefs or all of the above. And it's extremely scary to have to step back from that to like own the fact that we were indoctrinated in one way or another and be strong enough to take those pieces apart and then try and figure out on our own, you know, based on our own beliefs and our own intuition and our own desire how to put those pieces back together. Um, I'm fascinated by that. I think there are many people, potentially the majority of people in this world, who avoid that at all costs because it's hard. I know firsthand I've been through it. And probably people like Kevin, who you're about to hear, who was raised Mormon, um, went through it in an even more intense way. And I have the utmost respect and I'm extremely inspired by people who do this. And I think when I look back at a lot of the podcast episodes that I've recorded thus far, so many of them feature a story like that, uh, a restructuring of belief, a reconstruction of identity. Um, I, I really would love to inspire people who listen to this podcast to do more of that, to really step outside oneself, to step outside the, the structure and the context of w in which we were raised and decide what we want to be um, authentically and uniquely. I think that's revolutionary. Um, I think I've used this quote several times, but that uh, revolution is a change in the state of consciousness. So if all of us are changing the framework of our consciousness in some way and believing something and then living a life according to those beliefs, I think that's incredibly powerful. Um, so enjoy this episode with Kevin. Um, I am just so fucking inspired by him. I hope you are too. I'm so grateful that I met him and that I now get to have him as a friend. Um, we spent time with him and his girlfriend and his beautiful daughter, Sophia, um, for several days over July 4th. And they were so hospitable and accommodating and it's really cool to meet people on the road um either randomly or who've listened to the podcast and uh you know i i think it's very hard to find like-minded people randomly and so when we connect with people you know through this medium for example or when you're spending time and um people always ask me like how do i how do I meet people? Where am I going to find like-minded people? It's like, 
you're going to find like-minded people in the spaces you want to hang out. Um, but I think that's really hard to do unless you start a meetup group or a podcast or whatever else. Um, but it's really cool because it's like when you meet people through that context, you're not sitting there having small talk, trying to figure out if you can talk about, you know, your gay dad or your, you know, desire to overthrow the government or something. It's like you just automatically know we see eye to eye and there's a level of comfort there that I think I've been searching for my whole life. So I feel really grateful for everyone listening that um, you guys allow me to do this, that you care enough to sit there and listen. Um, sometimes I feel like it's a super selfish activity, but I hope that it's bringing value to your life as well. Um, yeah, and I think honestly, like, I think the most valuable thing for me is that this grows. And I would love for anyone that can to support me on Patreon uh, and throw a couple bucks my way. But honestly, I think the most valuable thing that I've experienced, and if I sit with it intuitively, like if you were to help me in any way, what would that be? It isn't even monetarily. It's just in sharing it, you know, to reach out to someone who you care about, who you think might enjoy an episode and share it with them and sort of like loop them into this, I don't know, this, uh, energy flow, this sort of shared belief system. Um, that's again, sounds kind of cult-like, <laughs> but you know, just bringing people together who share values and who are kind of weird and who want to opt out of systems, you know, that process of deconstructing and reconstructing is incredibly vulnerable and scary. And I wish I had had more people close to me that I could do that process with or who could support me through that process. And I knew that when I got out of that mess that I was going to start something or multiple things in order to like hold space for that process. So I hope it's doing that. Um, if you think any of these episodes are valuable, I would love for you to share them with friends. Um, I think honestly, that's the most that I could ask for, uh, aside from just you listening, which already is fucking awesome. At the end of the day, I want to do this quote-unquote work with all of you. Um, and on that note, one thing I wanted to mention is I very rudely on this episode interrupted one of Kevin's stories because he said something that reminded me of Angels in America. And then by the time I interrupted him and told him that, I had forgotten what he'd said that reminded me. Um, and I mentioned one thing that was also funny, but really what reminded me is he said something about the work, the great work begins, and then made a... Uh, comment about how that was in my intro. And, um, that came from initially a Carl Jung quote, um, about doing unconscious work and then was then used in, um, angels in America, which I talk about quite a bit on this podcast, wonderful play that was turned into an HBO special. Um, at the end, one of the characters talks directly to the camera and says the great, the great work begins. Um, and I have a little bit of a problematic relationship with the word work in general, but I think it's a really beautiful sentiment and, um, this is work, the reconstruction of oneself. And, uh, I want to do that work with other people and support them in that process. So anyway, that's why I interrupted you, Kevin. I just forgot at the time, <laughs> um, but highly recommend that, uh, play, or if you want to watch the HBO special, it's fucking amazing. Um, if you're into like sex and religion and homosexuality, uh, and uh, weird unconscious dreams and angels in heaven. It's just 
amazing. Um, all right. I'm going to stop talking, enjoy this episode, and catch you on the other side. All right. So I am here with Kevin, who I met just a few days ago. In a coffee coffee parking lot. In a lot. parking lot, yeah. <laughs> this and, creepy guy jumps out of his van. <laughs> yeah. It was great. It was great. Um, it's my favorite way to meet people, actually. Um, anyway, so what's funny about this is I don't know if I preface this at all, but just like the day or so prior... I've always had this very intense fascination with the intersection of sexuality and religion. And when I was in college, right after I graduated, I had this fantasy of moving to Utah and working with Mormon kids who were like cast out of their families for being gay. And I, I, I've started to sort of figure out why that was something I wanted to do. And I'm getting, I'm getting some more insight to it. Um, but anyway, I was just talking to a couple of friends of mine the day before I met you about this and you come up in the parking lot and you're like, yeah, my dad was a Mormon until he read <laughs> sex at dawn. I was like, hold up. <laughs> this, <laughs> this is just like way too synchronistic to ignore. Uh, foot, no, it wasn't like on his journey. Uh, it wasn't sex at dawn that pulled him away from it, but it definitely informed like, like the, the last part of his life. It definitely broadened his horizons. Yeah. yeah. So can you tell a bit of that story? Like, I mean, I think one of the things that I was always drawn to about people who, you know, left Mormonism, but any sort of, I think, sort of fundamental, really intense religion is that your entire worldview has to shift in a way that I can understand is often, I think, impossible for people to do. But if they do it, it's like you have to basically deconstruct your entire self and build it back up again. Deconstructing is a good word for it. Um, And like they, Mormons are known for being the nicest of people and the closest of families, but how, how do you keep that closeness? And it's, um, it's family first above all. And they, uh, the, the family is the church. So brothers and sisters are what you call your, the elders. And so it's brother Russell. It's, you know, like Mm. this is, this is what you do. It's, you know, sister, whatever. And so your family is part of the church. It's not just your local, you know, your immediate family. But, um, when I was, you know, coming out of high school and trying to, you know, that every guy, every woman like has their search for meaning, you know, they, they walk into the woods, you know, and Mormons give you that template, to where it's no longer the Native Americans that you know go on your walkabouts, or if it's the the um, who is it the they have the rung springers, the Amish, Amish the Amish yeah. and the rung springers, or yeah. whatever you say that. Yeah. Uh, Mormons have their mission, and so at nineteen, you put your name in, and you know you fill out, and you go through all these different interviews, and that's a whole different story if you want. But the interviews that I've um, actually done that before. You've done one of the interviews, I've, yeah, like with I, a bishop. I, or I, or maybe this is that was Scientology. Yeah, where they like they hook that's, you up to a machine. Yeah, that's they, yeah. that's the e meter. That's a, yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. No, that was weird. Um, <laughs> no, no, this is in hot water. Actually, this is uh, the mainstream Utah news. Is one of um, uh, Sam Smith is the 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 bishop's name who has now left. He got excommunicated, mm. and this was due to the interviews with the youth. So you one on one behind a closed door, you were led into a room with the 
the patriarch, we're talking the bishop, this person mm-hmm. that like gets on stage, like in front of you don't know anything like outside of this church. And then they are up there and they're amplified through these speakers and everybody looking at them. And then you're one-on-one behind a closed door, you're going through puberty. And then they're asking you very intimate questions. What do you think about when you masturbate? These are, these are questions that all over the world in every Mormon church, these bishops are asking now. And then like whatever you say and how deeply they inquire, it's kind of per bishop, mm-hmm. you know, and some, I guess, don't do this. Um, mine did for sure. The most awkward, like the most, and it puts you like self-reflective. Like, I don't know. These are thoughts and thoughts are not thoughts as we think of thoughts of just reflective mind. Um, they are the the proddings of demons. They are the proddings of the devil, right? So if you have these, these, um, whatever fantasies, those fantasies are of the devil, and um, they, they're there to help you and guide you. You know, it's all guised in that. So they're asking these like leading questions, which is obviously like so. when you're masturbating, you're going to think of something that probably mm-hmm. like <laughs> what is the thing you could think about that's acceptable? Yeah, <laughs> probably nothing. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> So then they, and then they're basically using that information to say, like, this you is can't how you take the sacrament um, mm-hmm. for the next six weeks or so. And what happens because it's the guilt circuit. So that's how it keeps everybody, um, you know, in their own little panopticon is they, uh, they pass around the sacrament, you know, within 10 minutes of everybody sitting there, 15 or so minutes after the hymns start. Uh, they have all the boys go up from, and they get the bread and they get the water. Mm-hmm. It's bread and water. That yeah. Then they, they do a little prayer, and then they go through the aisles, and you pass it between each other, and you pass it. And then you'll see everybody just going like this, and they're looking. They're trying to find who's the one that foregoes, that passes over the sacrament. Wow. Uh-huh. So there's all these. I mean, everybody's just thinking that it's just you're just watching what's going on there. No, there's this... This whole under the surface, all judgmental, keeping everybody in line. And if you give up the sacrament, it's like, what did you do? Well, the bishop told me that if I thought like a woman, you know, and like uh, this thing felt really good. And like, um, (laughs) I remember how innocent, like uh, going to um, the first time for me, it was totally innocent. Like I had heard people talk about masturbation, but I didn't understand it. But I like nod like, oh, yeah, I know what you guys are <laughs> talking about. You know, yeah. it's like my older brother's like playing pool or he had his friend over. So I, I go, yeah, yeah. He's like, everybody masturbates. I'm like, yeah, I had never, you know, and um, I was in the shower and I was like just cleaning. I'm like, oh, this feels good. It's good to clean. <laughs> you know? And so I just kept cleaning. And then it felt really good. I yeah. wanted to like run out. My family was watching a movie. I wanted to like run out and tell them like how good like cleaning in the shower feels. But they didn't, they like, I felt like that shame come over. Like, wait, this is something mm. that's not. But like, oh, this like completely, I really had that feel. I want to run out and tell them about it. So like you had this acknowledgement that like pleasure was bad and yeah, some way. yeah. I, yeah however it switched it was i felt guilty for it and i, I like i ashamed like i this is something i can't tell anybody about right but then a couple years later i'm sitting in front of the bishop who not just a bishop he was also um like on tv you know mm. not to get too per- like he he was yeah, and yeah like so you have somebody who when you're a kid and you look up and like these are these are your your archetypes these are your gods that are out there you know they yeah. tell you how to be what to think you know how to live and then he's asking me these questions they ask everybody and then they tell you yeah like 
it's not okay. This is a sin. You know, that's the, you're unpure. Your body is a temple. Mm-hmm. And all of these, what I've now learned to be just natural instincts, they, they're hijacked and they're hijacked. And then they use shame and guilt and they, they imprint upon you that those things, they stop it right at the point of it. So right as soon as you start having one of those natural instincts that like, wow, she's pretty or he's pretty or whatever it is, then it's like, oh, that's a bad thought. You know, like right. that's that. That's the prodding of the devil that's right. leading you astray. I mean, it's almost like a, I think culture at large does that to us, but this is like this sort of ultra potent. Very potent. Yeah. yeah. And then reinforced with the patriarchy, reinforced with these people that are supposed to be your guiding, you know, the guiding light or the, mm-hmm. you know, the, what are they, the true and narrow, you know, they have yeah. all these names for it. And it's like, and that's when you're feeling lost, you're feeling insecure. Yeah. What do you do? You fall yeah. back onto your imprinting and they, like Mormonism definitely has one of the strongest reinforcing. Um, I later, cause I'm a computer guy, I call them operating systems and I'm mm-hmm. not the first to do that. But like for me to see it as like Mormonism is operating system. Oh, okay. Now then you talked about deconstructing it. I had to do that. I had to deconstruct it and then put myself in an open source state. Right. Like oh, meditation yeah. for me, I literally would have to like, what is meditation? That sounds so woo. And it's like, no, no, no. You got a bunch of spyware, malware running on your scene. You control, alt, delete, and sit there and look at the system <laughs> processing, right? Yeah. And it's like, uh, okay, I can visualize that. Visualizing is a part of meditation. So, like yeah. me sitting up in Alaska, I was just like, I control, alt, delete. I'd go through my system processing. That guy, oh, that's some late and Mormon spyware. Delete, you know, right. delete, and then right. consciously try to try to do that. Yeah, I mean, I definitely talk about that. I always said. I mean, coming from a different place, but there was a period of time where I realized that it might be beneficial for me to ask myself why I was doing every single thing I was doing. Like, why am I wearing this piece of clothing? Why am I washing my dishes at night as opposed to in the morning? Like, why am I going to hang out with this person? Why am I going to bed at this time? Um, and it's, it's, it's interesting in that moment to realize how much of those things are just unconscious and you just think you don't think about them because yeah. they're just happening, like as yeah. patterns, but then to sit back and kind of like observe from the outside is, I think something a lot of people are just too horrified yeah. to do. It puts you in like, it's like you cut open your skin, like here are all my organs. Like, <laughs> right. Let's hope for the best. Um, uh-huh. So your, was your dad the first one in your family to start questioning things my little brother was never really he never really took too deeply into it and why do you think that Um, is opposed to the other kids he just just, he's just like this is bullshit Mm -hmm. like he just didn't whatever it was about how like his mind was wired he was he just never like this is just bullshit like Mm. he's like straight up this is like a cult like (laughs) this is some bullshit and he was the one who like well my brother to get to like how I'm not Mormon, yeah, he had yeah. a big, big role in that. Um, like I was, I went on my mission, uh, inner city Detroit. Like you, oh, like and before the bishop, like little offshoot there. Um, yeah, the mission. So you put your name into a list, and then the first presidency, they they supposedly pray about it, and uh-huh. then they send you where you go. You don't get a pick, and so like the whole family gets together. It's all exciting to open, you know, just like the college acceptance thing. This is like acceptance where your mission's at, and mine was Detroit. <laughs> I was like, oh, okay, <laughs> and like I'm like this 400 pound white kid, 
have out to head out to Detroit and it got scary. But all you know is like this is just like you want that patriotism. Patriotism is another thing. Like a young man wants to feel his place. He wants to find that place. Patriotism is one of those. You go put your life on the line and you feel such a sense of confidence, such a sense of purpose and meaning, all of those things that are so natural, but then they get hijacked with these little operating systems of Mormonism. Like, well, I'm a young man. You're supposed to go do that. So I know my, my family would be proud of me. I'm doing my family right by going out there and, and being right. a part of the system. And Doing so your mission in Detroit. I, <laughs> I show up in the middle of, yeah, like what they, they do it. Like um, as soon as you land, they're like, well, I'll throw you in the water. And so we went straight down on one and two miles and started tracking this process, going and knocking doors. And you're like on the plate. You, you go to missionary training center first. And I was only there for like three weeks because I didn't have to learn a new language. And that's like pure programming to where it's like you don't get a it's like some factoids if you ever see those kids with the you know yeah, the, totally. the, the white shirt and the yeah. little black thing like they're they're not living the same reality as you they can yeah. only write home once a week they can call home twice a year mother's day and christmas yeah. they're so isolated you can't read anything outside no outside media nothing and so they're just locked in this bubble now when you're in the bubble it's like well i have to ward off all of the I'm now one of the spiritual army you know I'm I'm one of the soldiers out there and so I'm on the forefront of the demons coming in and prodding you know I was, I was telling a friend the other day like uh, missionaries can't go in water because uh, the devil has dominion over over water like this is one of those things and these are all those little reinforcing things it's right. like oh water's scary oh I gotta it's like be makes gotta... you terrified to live in the world period. yeah very much so very yeah. much so but then they empower you to live in the world so my fear um good segue is like I got mugged down there this is uh, I don't know how many months into my touching that. oh am I touching the cord <laughs> yeah. sorry um uh so I, I, I'm not sure where I was at in Detroit, but yeah. I got mugged and, you know, the guy pulled out a gun and my first thought, the very first conscious thought I had was, it's okay, elder, you're wearing your spiritual armor. Like that was that. And, and in Mormonism or in a lot of things, that voice in your head is not your voice. That is the Holy Spirit. Mm. And so the Holy Spirit was guiding me saying, it's okay, elder, you're wearing your spiritual armor. And this is after you go through the temple, they do this endowment ceremony, and then you're, you're, uh, you're draped with the garments. And these are your spiritual armor that have their own little insignias on them. And like, this is like, you're supposed to be protected. You're raised, you know, like I remember all the stories from a kid about like Mormon firefighters that ran into the building and their everything was burned up into their up into the, the garment line, you know, like people be yeah, these are like every Mormon will have one of these stories that go into this myth that when your life is put on your on in line, like or on the line, that reason like is not it, Reason over reflex, right? Yeah. That's like what I got out of this because beliefs override reason. My belief that my underwear would save me from bullet overrode the reason of the situation that I was in, which is I was a white kid. I was vulnerable. I was sitting, you know, out there like I, I was a target and my ignorance let that mugging happen. Um, I mean, it, it was dissuaded, of course, but like that, that memory stuck with me. It was mm. like... Um, yeah, beliefs override reason, and beliefs are that powerful that um, 
if somebody else is guiding, if somebody else is dictating your belief, then they're dictating your own actions. Mm -hmm. And that was like a seed that was put in, um, uh, on the mission. And I left like maybe five months after that, I left early, you Mm -hmm. know, home from my mission. Um, lots of different reasons that that went into that, but mostly I felt hypocritical. And this went from, you're supposed to, like, there's a, how old are you at this time? 20 at this 20, okay. just coming on 21. Yeah. Um, part of the, like in the Book of Mormon, there's Moroni's promise, mm-hmm. which is if you, you know, read these things and pray of them, you'll know them to be true. And it's like, so I'm out there and I'm, you know, testifying. I'm out there literally knocking doors. I'm doing everything I can to bring this, but then the sense of hypocrisy in me because like, I'm scared. I'm not hearing, I'm not feeling this connection to something greater than myself. And I, I, I'm, I'm on my knees, and I said, I'm not getting off my knees here until I, I, I know this to be true, that, mm-hmm. the, that I, I can feel authentic in Moroni's promise. And I was there for hours and hours, and I'm not sure the actual hours that I was there, but I went through the weeping stage. I went through everything. And what got me off my knees was the justif- or the thought train that led me to, I have a broken receiver mm-hmm. that... God is there, you know, this church is perfect. All of these things we're, we're, we're a community trying to help the world to bring them into the fold because the only way to get to the celestial kingdom is through, is through these temples here on earth, through the new restored gospel. Mm -hmm. And I believe that, but I also then believe that my receiver was broken, that there was something wrong with me that did not allow me to feel God, to uh, have a um, direct experience with God. And that created such this level of hypocrisy in me that I left my mission. Like mm-hmm. I had to come home, but I, I kept that deep within myself, like that I was broken. Yeah. And then after your mission, they push you very quickly into marriage. Uh, and so very quickly within like three or four something months, six months, I was married, you know, and in the temple right. and that didn't go well. <laughs> that that lasted a year and a half or something. It, it didn't. It did not last last long. Um, and div- divorce is like not allowed. No, yeah. no. So civil, civil. That you can get civilly divorced, right? Yeah. Like legally, but in the church, that can't happen. It has to actually go through the authorities. The 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 quorum of the 70, they call it, and then they pray about it, and then it's called the temp- it's a cancellation of sealing because when you're sealed in the temple, it's for all time and eternity. And this yeah. is like the only, there's the three kingdom of heavens, and the very top are the ones that only went through the temple. And that's like only 10% of Mormons can even go through the temple. You know, it's you have to be a card carrying, you know, to get that. And then that gives you your golden ticket. So once you're sealed, and so like when she, when, or when we got divorced, um, she very quickly got remarried to another mm. m- missionary. But I never got contacted from the church, which means if she got remarried to another man in the church, that means that my sealing was canceled then again, a man can get married to multiple women in the church. Like that's, so it canceled my golden ticket. And that kind of gave me like this with the family who was still very, I'm like, why do I go? They rejected me. You know, they Mm. never, whatever she had to say to get the church to let her get remarried, I never had to stay in it. And that's totally like counter to the fundamental Mormon. Yeah. And so that kind of let me out a little bit. Um, 
uh, I don't know how far you want to go. Into <laughs> I was like fascinated. <laughs> I was like, this is going to be the longest podcast ever and I'm happy. <laughs> so, and at this time was your brother already like questioning everything and saying, my little was, brother was yeah, never, he was, yeah, just like out. he was never. And like, so when I got divorced, I was running an internet cafe in San Diego and, um, he was like, come drinking. You know, let's go get, go. And I was like, I can't, I can't. And he's like, what are you going to get grounded? You're going to go to hell. You know, I was yeah. like, all right, man. And so he got me drunk for the first time. And then a little while later, he got me high for the first time. And that changed my life. I mean, just, just being able to do that. It, it showed me that that inner voice is your own and you better like have, have a good relationship with that inner voice. And I remember getting high for the first time. It's like, I would, I would do things for high Kevin, which was like, I'd prepare food and then I would leave it strategically around the house with like a little note, you know? And I'm like, Oh, you past Kevin really loves future Kevin. You know? And it's just like, it, it allowed me to really start having this, uh, introspection that would allow me to deconstruct what everything that I knew, yeah. um, all those reinforcements that were, that were put into place. Uh, and then I got an opportunity to, um, like get out of the, the, um, San Diego and the internet cafe and go live on a gold mine in Alaska. And that like is where you disconnect from everything, the hive, if you want to call it, you disconnect from it all. There's no, no, no cell phone coverage. There's nothing up there. You got to be landing on a little Piper cub. Right. And nobody, the, the big thing is like, nobody was telling me what to read. Uh-huh. Uh, right. What, was this when you like access, there's like a list of books that more Oh yeah. By library. Well, yeah. So the, 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 yeah. It's the banned books list, right? This <laughs> I was is like, what a way to like call the shit out and exactly. make it obvious yeah. what books to what, go what, read. The actual <laughs> list, there's a name for it, but that's all, it's just, it's called anti-Mormon material, but they do have Perfect. lists and those things. Yeah. But, uh, one of the ones that I got, so it was Robert Anton Wilson. It was Timothy Leary. It was Terrence McKenna. <laughs> and so just a total, Total ignorant, uh, freshly out of Mormonism in the middle of Alaska. Uh, I'm listening to these things and it, it really, it gave me for the first time, like a true wonder for the world. Like the world was exciting. Mm-hmm. Like the way that people were talking about science, like learning, like I remember literally having that orgasm that they talk about when I when I understood that we're just like one planet among billions, like actually the scale of the universe gave me this overwhelming, I had to like sit down and it was like one of those weeping experiences. And those are all the things that you're supposed to get when you pray, mm-hmm. when you, when you sit and you, cause they do laying on hands. I'm not sure if you know that, Mm-mm. like every Mormon man that is endowed will have a little vial of oil on them. It's, 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 uh, anointed oil mm-hmm. and they can perform, um, they can perform miracles is what they call it. And so if somebody in the family was having, you know, an ailment, you would call all the the elders over and they all, you know, put their hands in a circle over and they circle you and then hands on the head and they do this, they do this blessing and it's, you know, then ergo cognitive dissonance. Yeah. <laughs> you <know? laughs> so you felt this though in reaction to like understanding the world kind of like probably both scientifically and philosophically at the first time. It, it's like, there's, there's just, 
it was so small. My world was so small inside mm. of Mormonism. It was just so small, but it was also so secure, right? The world was scary on the outside, but so comfortable on the inside. And when you, like, some people can be totally, like, um, paralyzed by w- just looking up and knowing right. the vastness of what's above our heads. That, to me, was not. I mean, it was just like, well, I mean, I didn't come from this, like, Mormon kingdom, you know. I'm not destined for my own planet now. But uh, what is that? Like, fun, like, out of everything that I've learned now, there's absolutely no way of not seeing myself as a product of this thing, this rock with, you know, all this other life, mm-hmm. like, okay, DNA. Does that mean that the plant has DNA too? Like, holy shit, the same as me, that's code. Like, it's yeah. just different, different letters, you know, right. it's, um, that, that, that became what led me into like that open source state. How do I reprogram my understanding of the world? And you said your dad started questioning things around the time your sister got Yeah, she sick. got cancer. Yeah. yeah. And he started those, well, if there's a God, how does how does God, you know, let these things happen to good people? Um, all those, like, very, you know, freshman philosophy level right. things. But then that led him into reading Christopher Hitchens. I, you know, actually, one of the first books him and I resonated on was Eat, Pray, Love. By <laughs> yeah. yeah, like that, that, because that, that was not a fundamental thing, but then it, her ability to self-reflect and mm. her introspection, all of that was incredibly empowering. And it was empowering to like my dad and I, of all people, you know, yeah. and uh, <laughs> then he would, he would like share with me, you know, like you got to read uh, Richard Dawkins. You know, you got to read Christopher Hitchens. And then that really like started opening the doors as well. So you kind of got to go go through this opening process alongside your dad in a way. Yeah. Yeah. Um, the thing that broke it open, though, that like solidified that it was not like that I was my own person and not just following my dad's journey yeah. because there was that level of like, oh, dad's doing this. So I'm going to follow right. dad. It's still following the patriarchy. Right. 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 Um, the only thing that broke the patriarchy or the patriarchal control for, for me was mushrooms. Mm. Um, that was like, um, should I get yeah, into go ahead. Okay. Uh, and this, this the scary. So like, this is like, I didn't have coffee until I was 26 years old, you know? So like drugs to me were, you know, like I got an award in, um, uh, elementary school for reporting some drug things that mm. I saw on the street. They weren't part of the school, but I saw a drug thing go down and they like used me in the like dare keep kids off drugs. And I'm like up there You're getting the a award. Yeah, I didn't know that this was going to happen, <laughs> you know, but it was incredibly scary to me. And, yeah. but I, I listened to Terrence McKenna. I listened to all of these different minds that talked about the, this, the ability that it can like change radically change your perspective on life. And I felt, I felt like my personality was trapped in that Amber to get cliche. You know, it was just trapped all of the like neuro linguistic programming that I learned all of those little mind techniques. None of that could like get at that core. And I felt Mm -hmm. I needed that experience that they talked about. And what do you like, So to be able to like read Terrence McKenna or any of these other people and to 
be trusting enough or brave enough to be like, okay, well maybe these voices plus what I've experienced firsthand, Mm -hmm. like allows, allowed you to move forward. Like I, I always think about when you're trying, there's so much in this world where we, I think we want to have people change. We want people to change (laughs) whether that's, you know, politics or their religion or just someone in a bad relationship. It's like this push of, and I think to some extent, it's impossible and all of these transitions are happening internally. And it sounds to me like that moment that you had on your mission of like, that wasn't really provoked by anyone being like, this is wrong. Like you totally came to that in and of yourself. Like it had, I guess probably same with your dad and your sister getting sick, like that self-reflection that occurred. I never went like thought of it that way, but yeah, like that seed that it planted was, yeah, I heard I heard that was the the loudest voice in my head was you're wearing your spiritual armor, you know, your your underwear are going to save you, Kevin. But what was really there, the actual deep of my fear, the deep of my consciousness was saying like, you were in a vulnerable situation. You got to handle this like an adult, you know, that's what should be in your head. Yeah. Um, What, what really stood out to me about like Terrence McKenna, Robert Anton Wilson, Leary was like, now I feel like I have such a good gauge of hypocrisy because I felt it so deeply in myself that when I hear what we're supposed to be elders or the adults in the world, which I'm like, damn, I'm adult now. And like the way that I hear people talk, it's like, I can just, I can sense that hypocrisy in them, whatever it may be. I mean, there could be people that like, um, are still members of the church that live it authentically and honestly, and the way they speak of it has no hypocrisy in it. And it's like, Oh, it's working for you. You know, I can, I can vibe with that. Like that, yeah. that feels authentic. I can, I can be with somebody who is authentic in their belief system, but the people that are hypocr- like hypocritical, it just, it has such a deep resonance in me of what I felt mm-hmm. and I had to get out of that. I put my life on the line, all that for, mm-hmm. um, Terrence didn't have any of that, like listening to the McKenna lectures and all that. He had no hypocrisy in them. And I was, I hadn't, at that point, nothing to lose. And it, um, I mean, should I get in the actual experience? I, I would of love it? to hear what happened when you did <laughs> the mushroom experience. So, yeah. like, I started, uh, like, losing a little weight in Alaska, but I never thought of myself as, like, this 400 pound, like, whatever. Like, it, that's the thing. Like, when you're that, you step on a scale, what does scale go to? Two, 255 mostly. Yeah, I haven't stepped on a scale. So, in a while. but, like, <laughs> you, you look at, like, usually they only go to, like, 255, yeah. 285 on the bigger ones. And so you have to, like, guess when it, like, pegs itself and goes around, you know? It's like, oh, shit. Um, so I don't really have a number of how big I was at yeah. the time, but I know I had lost a little weight. And, um, I, so I, yeah, I, I do the heroic dose, they call it the five dried grams. And I've got my labradoodles with me and it, it, Oh, of LSD. No, no, oh, no. Mushrooms. Of mushrooms. Oh, mushrooms. Yeah, okay. that's, oh, acid was, yeah. that would be way too much. <laughs> I was like, you do five it. hits, you do yeah. five hits of acid and you're legally insane. Yeah, yeah, that's, yeah. that's that okay. propaganda they put it. out there, you know? Yeah, yeah. Um, so yeah, five grams of mushrooms yeah. and it is we were 15 minutes and it, I get that somebody's with me. That, mm. that thing that you thought the Holy Ghost was, I start feeling with the mushroom. It's mm. still me. But it's me in the most 
empathetic, embracing all those things that I would uh, ever have wanted from a mother to like hold. It was like every single cell was being just given space, mm-hmm. given, given embrace until I needed to be. <laughs> <laughs> and like, I was scared because you, you're told right. to like, not go, you know, don't look in the mirror. And I didn't even make it to the bathroom. I looked in the mirror and, um, I, I saw myself as other people would see me, like not as I told myself I was. So it like shattered. Like I was hallucinated up until psilocybin. Mm-hmm. Like once I ingested that, it allowed me to it broke that illusion that I'll run next week, I'll whatever, you know, like all, all those justifications that led to a 400 pound man looking back at me in the mirror was just shattered and it was, but it wasn't shattered in a judgmental way. It was in a very empathetic way. It was like, this is who you are. How beautiful. Is this how you want to be? It was just a, it was just a very, very open-ended non-judgmental question, which was, is this what you want your reflection to be next year? Mm -hmm. I was like, no, I don't, I don't want to see this. I didn't even know I looked like this. I I didn't know that this is the person I was in the world. Mm -hmm. Well, what do I do? I was tripping on mushrooms. I went and signed up for an Ironman triathlon, of course. (laughs) (laughs) And like, yeah, the next morning I woke up with the bill for that. And like, oh, shit. Like, this is a real deal. Like, I, okay, Um, I'm going to follow this, this prompting. It was the, it was the most transformative experience was, was having that experience. But then it's like the work begins, right? Uh, You're the work begins. Yeah. <laughs> um, so Which I actually, I'm going to interrupt you really quickly. Yeah. Have you ever read or seen Angels in America? Have you heard of this? Uh, you should. That, that baseball movie from no, back? No, no, oh. that's Angels in the Outfield. Okay. Like, no, this is a play that was turned into an HBO special, so you can, I think the whole thing's on YouTube. Really? You watch it. Yeah. But um, there's a bunch of different storylines, but a big part of it is um, a Mormon couple and their and the guy's mom and he's gay and it's like this whole thing. Really? Yeah. Um, anyway, there's a lot. She, there's this one funny line that she says. One of the wife, who's married to this gay Mormon, and she said something about the angel Morona. 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 Yeah, yeah. She's like, well, if the angel is Morona, like, why aren't we called morons? <laughs> it's beautiful. Anyway, right? um, I forget what you were just saying that reminded me of that, but there's a lot of. Um, really interesting themes about Mormonism. Yeah, I'll definitely and, check yeah, that. Yeah. HBO, yeah? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Anyway. And, no, you feel like a moron afterwards. Yeah. You know? yeah. <laughs> but I use that. Like, like um, I'll use that belief in my that I knew with full honesty mm. that my underwear would save me from bullets. Yeah, yeah. So now being on the outside of that, yeah. I can meet people where their their belief system is. Right. And I know that some people just have crazy beliefs. Yeah. Doesn't mean they're not honest. Doesn't right. mean that they're they're stupid. Right. You know, that's just that that belief override reason. Yeah. Anyway, um, I interrupt you, you want to hear the rest. So you signed up for the Iron Man. Yeah. Oh yeah. <laughs> and I, I showed up at the gym, one of the local jujitsu gyms, and I'm like, hey, uh I got an Iron Man, and so I spent the next like year and a half uh, training for that, and I dropped like two hundred twenty pounds. And through that whole entire like experience, I was doing podcasts. It was literally just 
um, I called it like installing my own open source software. Like I had for the first time the ability to like command my action without feeling the guilt, feeling the shame, feeling any of that. It's like, I know that within myself has these possibles, right? I I love that term, the adjacent possible. Have you heard that? Mm -mm. Stuart Johnson, he Mm -mm. talks about the adjacent possible, which is our shadow future, right? And we have the ability to question today to then push ourselves into that adjacent possible. Wow. Fascinating. So some members of your family were sort of questioning things and reevaluating mm-hmm. things. It seems like relatively simultaneously. Yeah. 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 There was once my dad, cause I mean, dad's, uh, he's a, the pillar, he's the patriarch. Yeah. And so it causes a lot of, um, but a lot of it was like, once he was like left and made it, made it known to at least us, I'm, I'm, I don't know the conversations he had with my, you know, mm-hmm. with my siblings outside my, my little brother, but it became like something you don't really talk about. Like that doesn't go to church anymore, you know, mm-hmm. but he was pretty respectful of letting them have their own belief and mm-hmm. not getting in. He wasn't, I don't think he was sending like the believers in my family. God is the God delusion, you right. know, or God is not great from Hitchens or anything. Right. Like he wasn't doing that. And then your dad died. Yeah, he dead. And how did <laughs> yeah. that affect um, the family? You know, it, it, uh, so he felt, uh, not to go on too long of the story about it, but the most beautiful I'd ever seen in my family is the time that he was in the coma. So mm-hmm. he was super healthy and, um, you know, a pipe in his brain blew and he fell into a coma and was for 14 days. But during that 14 days, my family was just so, I mean, just the, the level of joking back and forth, all of these things. I mean, it was, you felt connected mm-hmm. and I felt very, very close. Um, but then very quickly afterwards, reality sets in that he's not there. And, um, I felt where there was that, that, um, flexibility with, you know, um, like my mom had strayed a bit, these type of things. Like now it's, that's how they've coped is they've, they've gone, they've gone back. And I, then I get the calls and I get the emails that they're having visions that, you know, dad has come to them and, um, you know, I'm I'm on the wrong path or whatever it is, you know, and that, um, that's not how I, that's not healthy for me to remember my dad like that. Mm -hmm. I want to remember him, as you know the person who had left the church but he could have gone back right and in their head like that is the dad that they want to remember and you know that's that's i mean it strikes me as like honestly i think you're both doing the same thing in different ways it's like to deal with the death of a father a close family member of someone you love like and i think i talked about this the other night I certainly became a very spiritual person when I was going through an excruciatingly hard time in my life. And I felt like the only thing that I could do in that space to keep me alive and breathing was to believe in something that <laughs> like yeah. if, even if it didn't have a name or it didn't look like anything that there was like a purpose for why I was going through what I was going the through. Act of belief itself. Right. Like that's the, thing, the action of belief 
negates so much depression, negates so much of that negativity that that leads you into a spiral of despair. Mm -hmm. The actual action of belief, it doesn't matter what you're believing, just that action has incredible amounts of power to it. Yeah. And I have like a lot of, I think some people are confused when I say this, like I have a lot of respect for people who come from pretty, I think like debilitating, traumatic, abusive religious situations and come out of it in a way where they recognize the value of like belief and of like seeing the world in like a sort of purposeful, meaningful way and don't reject it outright, which would make total sense because when you've gone through something so horrific, like why Mm -hmm. wouldn't you want to just reject it outright? But I, I, I feel like you have this sense of, um, empathy and compassion for your family because it it sounds like you know exactly why they're they went back you know like they want to hold on to that planet with the only tool yeah Yeah, he he's waiting for them and i i don't think my dad's waiting for me but i think my dad left an an enough of an imprint within me Mm -hmm. like in a neurological we're talking about like these the, the mirror neurons that are in us, right? This is, comes from the study, uh, uh, one face, one neuron. And they were able to like isolate that. If you show a picture of like somebody having full open brain surgery, if you show them a picture of Jennifer Aniston and then you show her the, the writing, you know, her name written out, they should be totally different areas of the brain processing all these different, uh, you know, they went systematically went through all these different things and all things associated with Jennifer Aniston was this little tiny clump of neurons, which, what does our parents do? Our parents are our very first experience of relationship, very first people, very first archetypes. And so this clump of neurons that are in my brain that are associated with all things my father mm-hmm. doesn't have an external stimuli anymore. He's not there. I can't text him. I can't call him. That's not there. So what is this little metabolizing creature inside of me, this little clump of cells that wants to maintain life? How does it still exist? That's where I've been able to internalize and be like, you're still here. And I know that my dad was, you know, for his faults or not, he was one of the most confident, secure men in his place. Like he could walk into a room and command that. And when I'm feeling insecure, when I'm feeling small, I know that there's a part of me that doesn't, that doesn't have the capacity to feel small. I don't think my dad that could ever, ever, at least the imprint he left in me, Mm -hmm. left me with a little bit of myself that I can invoke if I get nervous and I need to walk into a room or something. My dad's still there with me. He doesn't need to be in the clouds. He doesn't need to be on, you know, a different planet waiting for me. He's still here with me in a, in a neurological and a physical and a metabolic way. He is here still with me. Yeah. I mean, it's fascinating because it's basically like using for you, I think I see and hear this a lot, like using these very true scientific or at least presumed to be true (laughs) scientific facts to sort of infuse you with this sort of like beautiful, grounded spirituality that's like very real, you know? (laughs) I I hope it's that um, that barometer of hypocrisy. I felt that so deeply to to take. I mean, I am putting my life on the line. Literally, I feel so. You know, cliche saying that, but come on, I'm a white guy in the middle of Detroit, (laughs) you know, like that's, it was a dangerous situation. That reality of that situation puts so much energy in you. And that energy was supposed to be focused at God. 
And when I was on my knees, honestly praying, honestly asking for some sort of, like the things, that, the, the voices that I would hear, the echoes of my pleading was like, if you just the slightest, slightest bit of your knowledge to know that you are there, I could, I could bring all of the masses. I can change this world if you just give me the slightest inkling that you exist. And to me, met with nothing. Or maybe nothing. like that was the message. Well, that's right. So that was the message I needed because right. I know that power. That was an honest pair. Yeah. That was the source of everything that I could be was put into this prayer and put into this. Like, I know that that was my authentic core. Yeah. And then I went and what did I say? I was broken. My receiver was broken. God is great. I am broken. Uh-huh. So now when I disconnect from that, I can still go, no, I know my honest core. I know that there's a better tomorrow if we do the work today. Yeah. I know that it comes down to framing. And and that's the, 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 the most I've gotten out of the world is to be able to sit today to think about tomorrow and to compel my actions to make sure that tomorrow is better. And I've yet to be able to pose that question to somebody, what, you know, why is tomorrow not going to be better to, than today? Mm-hmm. And they'll be like, well, climate change. Oh, okay. Climate changes a lot. You know, 11,000 years ago, there was an ice age, yeah. you know, and let's go back. We have the ability to like, you know, have a mental time machine. Let's go back to our ancestors 11,000 yeah. years ago when they, they were literally a mile high of ice above our heads right now. Every action that they took led to all of us now. What an accomplishment in their eyes. Yeah. It's just a simple reframing technique that empowers me today to make sure that like, holy shit, we can affect the climate. (laughs) Fucking monkeys with thumbs are changing the climate of a planet. It's pretty fucking powerful. Yeah. Better not do it ignorantly or we're going to get voted off this island. (laughs) You know, it's, it's, we're not going to be around long if we don't uh, have an honest belief that we can affect the future. Yeah. Yeah, and I think it's very tricky business. Um, and I had a similar experience. I mean, not religious, but definitely falling under extreme narcissism and recognizing that, like, what someone portrays themselves to be versus who they actually are can be excruciatingly different things. Yeah. And I think, honestly, very different for a lot of people to recognize because I think, like, narcissism is a God complex and we're so in. Um, we so want to believe in something that will, you know, pick up on whatever. I mean, I just last night was shown the like Mormon tablets where Joseph Smith like drew his face into like, Uh I had never seen that before. I mean, it's like he like made a cartoon drawing of his face Uh over some tablets and was like, see, it's me. Yeah. And from a traveling archeologist that was bringing, but Again, it's it's amazing. To, so I remember like looking at those as a kid, never seeing anything outside the world, and just going, oh, "These are ancient. This is so amazing." And you put that into Joseph Smith's vision and like his ability to like translate these type of things. He must be, you know, like using the Urim and Thummim. Those are good words for two rocks and a hat that he looked through to translate. <laughs> like it's really weird that like how come nobody else can see these plates you found in New York, these gold ones, and yeah. how come the other guy'd be in the other room while you translate the head and a hat? Yeah, none of that make right. none of that is questioned when you're in the church. It's all just a matter of faith. And yeah, and I think we are um, we 
a lot of us at one point in our lives or another is doing that in some respect. I mean, whether it's politically, whether it's our parents, whether it's like, it's so frequent and so easy. I mean, I spent a good bit of time in the astrological community and like, I'm super into aspects of it, but I could see very easily firsthand how that world can be, you know, taken on and misused and abused easily like yeah. spiritual leaders of any kind and anything that takes on that kind of God sure. complex. Sure. Um, and I think I may have mentioned this the other day too. I, there's this great book called, um, inner gold by Robert Johnson. He's a great author. He writes all these very like short little books that are easy to read, Concise. but like have so much information. <laughs> the in them. Yeah. And he inner gold is what he basically calls our inner God. And so, um, it, the book is actually about psychological projection, which yeah. I am fascinated by, but I always saw psychological projection as a negative, right? Like you're ugly. It really means I think I'm ugly, Yeah. but that the same thing is happening in a positive sense. So when we like idolize a romantic partner mm-hmm. or a teacher or yeah. a spiritual leader, that what we're doing is projecting our inner God yeah. onto someone else. I love right? that. And I didn't understand, like, that's something that I... I've been criticized for, but now I completely embrace. When I right, see somebody, same. I know that I'm not seeing their insecurities. Yeah. I'm seeing the things that I, maybe they find beautiful about themselves or how they're wanting me to see them. That's what I see. That's what I render when, I, when I'm like beholding someone. I'm rendering the most beautiful bits of them. Yeah. The things that... like. And that's for me. Like, or the why most would beautiful I... bits of yourself, even. I mean, that's it's in again. I think that goes back to this point that I'm taking a very long time to make. But that, like, I remember someone saying too, like, you went through all of these experiences that you went through to learn discernment, right? Like, you were tricked time after mm-hmm. time after time yeah. after time with these sort of brilliantly <laughs> narcissistic yeah. people. Yeah. And I knew that like, okay, if I want to go on and affect change or I want to do a podcast and have people listen to me, or I want to like buy a bunch of land and bring people on it. I cannot make that same mistake. And so to like, look back and to realize that like, Oh, okay, maybe I had to experience all these traumatic, abusive situations with people to teach me one, not to like partner with or follow the wrong people, but to ensure that I wasn't doing that. And like, there's a fine line, I think. And this is what this guy, Robert Johnson talks about that. Like we're in this middle ground period where we don't respect authority as, as much as we once used to. So it was very easy before to be like, that's the priest. That's the rabbi that's the, the whomever yeah they hold the power they hold the power and yeah. i just follow them and yeah. we're in this i think transitionary transitory space where we're starting to re-embody that god but we're not quite ready so that becomes like joseph smith it gets like swallowed narcissistically and then we don't know how to handle it and yeah. it can be let out of control and most people don't notice the difference. Actually, you're the perfect person to talk to about like what. <laughs> so like with this, I know that like in Mormonism and in these like type of systems, they empower the patriarchy. And then like now knowing that I, without better scientific words, the masculine and the feminine energies, I know that I embody both of those. Yes. And I know that the, my whole childhood was put to empower the patriarchy, which is to empower the masculine. And so like how I've 
now, like now having a daughter, all of these things, I know that I have to balance both of these energies to be able to fully, like authentically broadcast my energy into the world. But I'm, I feel so ignorant in it. I feel so like, like when I think of the masculine, I think of dominance, which doesn't have to be a bad thing, but mm-hmm. it can get out of hand. Mm-hmm. Like the, the, the core when I, when I feel masculine is control dominion dominance when i feel this feminine which was totally suppressed it's like i can hold space for my daughter i feel creative with her it's it's the essence is holding space masculine was controlling space what have we done unto our world have we held space for all life yeah. Or have we dominated it? Have we completely controlled every aspect of it? And what has that led to? So there's a complete imbalance in not just myself that I'm totally ignorant on how to balance these energies. I don't even know the right word. I feel I feel weird even saying, like, I gotta balance my feminine. <laughs> you know, like Yeah, well if, and I think like my feeling about it is like that I think sometimes, as you just said, control and dominance are useful, right? I'm reading this book. I don't, I never remember the order of words, but it's like king, warrior, lover, magician. And it's, Oh, this is the Jungian shadows. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's, it's two guys who write about like, um, boy masculinity and, um, boy masculinity, um, boy psychology and man psychology basically. And talks about how like we, um, we have a bunch of boys running around and that we see masculine as immature and that's why it's abusive, but actually like mature masculinity, you know, like if someone attacks you, you need to probably learn how to attack back. Just kind of standing there and doing nothing may not be the best bet. Like let's protect your family. Um, anyway, yeah, I think the problem is that, um, the masculine and the patriarchy became so inflated that Mm -hmm. it overruled, a lot of the feminine value, but what doesn't need to happen is like a shift. We don't need to like get rid of it. We just you need can't. To no, you reevaluate. <laughs> like, if you're if you're in a like what is the liberty the liberty scales right? Mm-hmm. You can't just push off the patriarchy and think that you on the other side. And this is internally in me. I know that like it's easier for me to fall into the masculine, right? Especially like being with a partner who very like has me. Like, I, I'm like, ugh, feelings. I got to yeah. deal with those. I'll yeah. deal with those tomorrow. No, I deal with them now. Give them space. Hold space for those emotions as they happen. Because if you don't, then they just, like, physiologically hold on. Yeah. For my daughter, like, I have to find that balance in the feminine to actually appreciate a lot of aspects of my daughter. There's no ability when I'm in my masculine to appreciate my daughter in the same way. Because it's like... I'm completely on guard. I'm the mm-hmm. big primate that has to always have my chest out and my, my fangs a little showing when I'm in public with her instead of like breathing, looking at my daughter, seeing that eye contact that she gives me like, I'm okay, daddy. And as she goes up to a stranger and asks them how their day's going, or gives pets them their a dog. Hug, or bets their dog, you know, it's like, <laughs> which she's very, she's okay. Into. And it's like the, the the feminine energy in me allows me to just let her have that space. Let her be her own person. How did having her also like, so, okay, you have it. And I, this was relatively unexpected for you that 
you were gonna have a daughter. Yeah, I didn't think I'd. I have sixteen nieces and nephews. I didn't. Yeah. I was. I was. Uh, I, I thought I wasn't going to have kids. Yeah. yeah. And how? So when you had kids, how did you um, make decisions? I guess around like religion or family. Like that must have been super challenging. Very very <laughs> challenging. It's. Um, and the, like her, like, how do I talk about Jesus to her? You know, yeah. she like goes to church and you know, like whatnot when she does get invited to church, yeah. like, how do you talk to her about that? And like, I have to frame it in certain ways that doesn't have my uh, very biased opinion about Jesus. And I'm like, oh, he seems like a good guy. Like, what is he saying? Like, <laughs> yeah. what is the energy? Like, how yeah. is the people, you know, I bring it back down to like, cause she can't contemplate something bigger than herself right now she can't contemplate all of the nuance of religion but she gets to go be with a bunch of people that are all trying to achieve a certain level of energy and peace and just like stillness in a very chaotic world Mm -hmm. there's these places all around that people gather and just take a fucking moment you know it's just crazy out there i don't i don't blame them and i want her to experience that but I don't want her to be religious. I want her to be spiritual. Um, The biggest change that happened to me with her was when I was like going through the neurolinguistic program and doing all this, like, ah, I can open source my state. I can program my belief to do anything. Right. And that made me a, like, like an observer of this game of life. If the zombie apocalypse happens, I could have fun with that. You know, like mm-hmm. it's just like whatever. I was going to be a, a player as if it's a video game. My daughter made reality reality. It made me, I, I, am, I am here and I need to be responsible for my place here because this is not just my, it sounds like that cliche bit, but it's like, this is not just my future. This is now hers or just my experience of life. My experience of life is no longer just mine. It has this little tiny human and I've never seen her anything but a tiny human mm-hmm. and it's like she comes pre-baked with her own little personality and everything and it's my job is just to let that unfurl but like help the environment let that happen and currently I I don't feel like the the future I hoped for when I was like back giving you know speeches on optimism and technology and all that, that I thought we would already have this, some sort of like peace in our society, some sort of like to like maximize the ability, like what is Amber case calls these phones, technologically mediated telepathy. Like it's fucking amazing that we have the ability to connect all over the world instantly. Yet we're still just, I mean, our political sphere right now is scary. It's incredibly scary, and I don't want that for her. Yeah. And so I feel this this unnerving, but this unwavering responsibility to like probe our adjacent possible, as Stephen Johnson said, and push us into a shadow future that isn't scary for her. Yeah, but I sort of love that, like your strategy in doing that. I think goes back to that point I made about like how we come upon change or self actualization or realization within ourselves. It's like, you're just like, here's all the options. Like, I'm not going to try and control this or tell you what to believe or Mm -hmm. who to hang out with or how to live your life. Like you just experience this for yourself. And it's like almost like the exact opposite of what Mormonism is, which was like at that young age being like, this is bad. This is wrong. This is bad. And trying to hold on to that and control it. And you're sort of like, 
in a protective, you mm-hmm. know, adult way, being like, here's... You ever heard that uh, they use it in Mormonism as a, like, along the highway, you have guardrails, right? To keep you, keep you from going off the road. Mm. And that's what, that's what the word wisdom, that's what all these uh, control mechanisms do, is they keep you on straight and narrow. And within it, there's very comfortable... But boy, like I really like roads that you can see. Going it, off uh, road, it, yeah. no, not going off, but at least like the scenic outlooks. Right. You don't want yeah. a big guardrail in yeah. the way; it obscures the view. Yeah. And I know my my daughter is safe, like walking around our beautiful little town. So I don't put guardrails around her. I don't want to obstruct her view of a beautiful world that she's experiencing as an as an innocent little child. I don't want to corrupt that innocence. If she can take that as long as possible. Like that, that I would say I'm, I'm doing good as a parent is preserving that innocence. Yeah. Well, I think that's a pretty beautiful note to end on. <laughs> oh, <yeah. laughs> this, this is very all over. <laughs> it was, I, it was good. I could probably do this again with you. So maybe we'll have to well, do that some, next time we swing thank through you. Whitefish. Thank you for putting yourself out there with this. I mean, this, You're welcome. you broadcast to the point where now we're meeting. You yeah. Know, I appreciate you. Yeah. I think this. you actually might be, I'm like sitting here, you're wearing a, the millennial, a millennial's you guide shirt. Me, right. And I, and I actually had the thought, I was like, I actually think you might be the first person who I've had on my show that was like a listener. A fan? Yeah. Well, it's, it's an <laughs> Aside honor. from like a friend or my dad, they don't really go. <laughs> Definitely yeah, an honor. It was an honor for thank me you, as well. Anna. So thank you. Thank you. Hey, hey, hey. Thanks for listening to that episode. Um, today I am going to play you out with a song called Masks. I believe this is a live version and it's by uh, The Brook and The Bluff. By the way, I haven't mentioned this in, wa- in a while, but I do have a Spotify playlist called A Millennial's Guide to uh, Saving the World. Um, so I put all of the, uh, songs that I've ever played on the show in that playlist in case anybody gives a shit, you can check that out and subscribe to it. Um, but this song is good. I, it definitely speaks to, I think the ways in which we sacrifice our own identity for something. Um, I think this, when you listen to the lyrics, these lyrics can definitely either speak to the way that we do that in relationship or the way that we do that in society and culture as a whole. I guess that's also a relationship, the way that we present ourselves in the world. Um, anyway, some of the lyrics are, I'll put on this mask for you, I'll parade and dance for you too. Um, and coming off the theme of this episode and sort of what I talked about a bit in the intro around the masks and the identities that we take on in order to exist in the world um, and how scary it is to kind of remove that mask and live as we are and express who we are. It's super scary. Um, This podcast is an exercise in that every single time. I know when I uh, stopped recording with Kevin that he sort of said the same thing, like, wow, that was vulnerable for sure. Like it feels kind of comfortable in the moment, but then you step back and realize what you just did and you're like, holy shit, that's going out to the public. Um, but I think it's an excellent exercise. Aaron and I talked about that in our podcast last week, which was probably the most scary and vulnerable episode that I've ever posted. Um, I think it's good. I think the more we do that, the more we realize that there are people out there that support us. I think that vulnerability um, breeds vulnerability and also is reflected back. So when we're living authentically, we are attracting, um, you know, like attracts like. So I'm going to keep doing it. 
swallowing the fear, moving forward. Um, I hope you are all inspired to do the same. And I hope this song inspires that as well. Talk to you next time. Never ask your soul what it's waiting for